Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 124 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Yo. Blah, blah, blah. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what if that was the rest of the podcast, like for 45 minutes, or like blah, blah, blah. Blah, mm, blah, blah, blah. No, I just was tripping over my words in the intro and it was very stressful. But how is everyone? Happy April Fool's Day. Yeah, it is April Fool's Day. You know what's great is uh, I forgot to do my work for the podcast until about 35 minutes ago. My wife was laughing at me and saying April Fool's. And I was like, that doesn't apply here. You can't just laugh at me. <laughs> yeah, you can't just say a mistake is April Fool's. Yeah. Do they do April Fool's myself. differently in the UK? No, they're just mean over there. <laughs> Yeah, they wait for you to like drop a plate and then they yell April Fool's at you. Yeah. yeah. The whole crowd just yells at you. You get hit by a car. They're like, April Fool's. Did they spell it F-O-U-L-S? Ooh. European spelling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody from work who's out of our London office and she was like, never moved to London. I'm like, it seems so romantic. She's like, it's a lie. Okay. She's (laughs) like, it's been raining for three days. Okay. What? That's nothing. We're in California. I've lived in London. London is lovely. Forget your coworker. (laughs) Well, it also has been raining here for three days, which is probably a sign of the apocalypse, but that's fine. Um, How are you, Andrew? I'm good. It it did rain here, but the sun's coming out and it's normal for it to rain here around this time of year. Mm. Mm -hmm. You're back in Woodstock. I'm back in Woodstock. Yeah. I mean, not not much is going on here. (laughs) I'm alone in the woods. (laughs) April Fool's. (laughs) (laughs) What if your cats pull an April Fool's joke on you? That'd be pretty crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's why everything in the closet was taken out, spread across the floor, and there was just a threat written on the ground in blood. Mm. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like Bonicula. Bonicula. Oh, good mm. reference. Andrew, it was recently your birthday. Did you get any birthday shame? You know, <laughs> I did. Oh. And I think you know I did, Bailey. Yeah, I did. Oh, April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> Leading question, April Fool's. Yes, I did, though not as much as you might think. Well, actually, no, a fair amount. Let's just break it down. You can decide how much you thought it would be. (laughs) Paige, go back at home. I'll let you know. So uh, only one physical book has arrived. So it's going to be a tapered shame depending on when uh, certain packages are delivered. First and foremost, because Bailey got me a gift certificate to bookshop.org. You're welcome. uh, To support one of my local uh, Woodstock bookstores, The Golden Notebook. We had been sort of all around with what was going on with our family and we didn't know where we were going to be. So instead of giving me a gift certificate to a specific brick and mortar, she let me support my local from afar. Lovely. Very nice. Those books have not arrived in the mail yet, but most of them I don't think will necessarily affect the podcast because it's um, a lot of like continuations and series and things like that or things that I think we've pretty much covered, but I'll let you know what I bought so you guys can be prepared. I do have in that, I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay, your friend and mine, <gasps> which I'm very excited about, as well as the first non-Shadow and Bone duology in the Bardugoverse. I know it's called the Grishaverse, but not to me, <laughs> uh, which is um, Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Those are coming along. I've read Six of Crows. It's fun. It's fun. I'm excited. Excited to have fun. <laughs> I also have the second in the Skolomance, Skolomance trilogy. The Last Graduate is coming in there, as well as the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, Ooh, which I hear is I, quite good. It's very good. I love that book. I think that's my favorite of his, honestly. Ooh. Well, dang. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one more. Uh, the Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. Mm-hmm. 
And so those are my shame to come. The only physical shame I do have is uh, on my birthday celebration day, I went to Rough Draft Bookstore in Kingston and Jillian bought me a book, uh, which is called Burnham Wood. I bought it, picked it at the recommendation of Bailey. Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. Mm. It's a horror book about Burnham Wood. Burn them wood. It was funny. Uh, we went to Rough Draft basically to read. It was like just like a fun activity. Go there for a few hours, get a coffee and read. And I was reading Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead, uh, which I was mm-hmm. just reading off podcast. And Jillian was reading Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow and then bought Burnham Wood. And then all of a sudden we realized we had two uh, Macbeth themed uh, <laughs> books sitting next to each oh, other. Oh, yeah. Which is pretty funny. Ooh. Nice. Ooh. But enough about my shame. I feel like I've been hung out to dry. What of you, you monsters? Well, I also want to flag that you uh, did a giant brag by sending me your Goodreads stats that said you're 16 books ahead of schedule. Holy moly. Oh, I'm sorry. You should look it up now because I finished The Wave since then. I'm 17 books ahead (laughs) of schedule. Oh, man. Oh, no. Again, I am a barrel rolling downhill. I cannot be stopped. (laughs) I can't help but think you're headed for a fall, man. (laughs) This is too much. What could I possibly have? I asked you this, Toby. Yeah, Worst true. case scenario, I hit my goal in like April and then I can just relax. <laughs> Sounds pretty cocky for somebody that hasn't done the choosing yet. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I could have to be infinite jesting myself on this April Fool's Day. You have shame, but you don't need to be ashamed. Well, that's the thing. This The, the shame is just going to get eaten up in, my, in the churn of my unstoppability. <laughs> mm. That's what we do on this podcast is we eat our shame. <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> It's just eat your shame and it's like the cartoon of us like forcing books into our mouth. <laughs> um, I attempted to get more shame and failed. Oh. How? How? Well, okay. So I, first of all, I finally finished The Last Graduate, which I was talking about last podcast. And it's like, oh, yeah. why would I possibly have a hard time finishing it? It's almost like I was mm-hmm. reading it, you know, at my dad's hospice bedside. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I finally did finish it and I did enjoy it. There was no fault to the book. It was just being in a weird headspace. So then I was like, oh, I need to get the next book in the trilogy, The Golden Enclaves. So I went to the bookstore where I was staying, but they they had it, but it was in hardcover and I'm a monster. And my other two were in paperback, so I didn't want to get it. Gross. And then I was like, oh, I'll get the new Rebecca Mackay, but they didn't have it. Uh-oh. And so I was like, well, I, I guess I'll just walk out of this bookstore without buying anything. <gasps> First time for anything. I know. Sounds like my life. And it was um, also influenced by the fact that we were five minutes from closing. So like if I had had more time, I probably would have found something. But yeah, so that was my shameful non-shame. Toby, did you have any? No. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> You say, of course not, but sometimes you surprise us. I do. Yeah, I do have it sometimes. Yeah, but not not today. April Fool's. April (laughs) Fool's. Uh, I love that we're making this a big running bit of our podcast and it's going to come out on April 4th. It's going to come out on a different day. (laughs) The ultimate April Fool's. April Fool's is not April Fool's. It's true. I love it. Um, Well, another thing to note is our podcast again predicted the future in that the author of Queen Bees and Wannabes is suing Tina Fey. Oh. So that's, you know, something we referenced. But I mean, I'm kind of on her side. She should be getting some profit off of Mm -hmm. the musical and she's not. And as people that reviewed it on our podcast, we demand profits of the musical as well. Exactly. That's yes. true. 10%. Yeah, just 10%. Yeah, only 10%. <laughs>
of a film's revenue. (laughs) (laughs) Other things of note, our daughter has suddenly started talking like crazy, and it is very cute, but also very strange that she'll just say like sentences and words. But a lot of it is, Mama, read Purple Book now. Daddy, no daddy. Go away, daddy. Mommy, read. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds just like Bailey, honestly. (laughs) Yesterday, I brought her more books from the library, as is my shame. And she Mm -hmm. went through them one by one, just looking at the cover and stacking them in front of me on the couch. And then when she put the last one on, she's like, done, read now. And then she sat down and just waited for me to read. And I was like, how many? She's like, oh. So (laughs) I think she's my child. Uh, I will say I was uh, flipping through our Instagram um, and I think we had a message from our lovely Pedro Brent and uh, I had ridiculed you, Bailey, for um, for getting, you know, 90 children's books for your kid. And he said he does it, too. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is a this is an epidemic. This is this is insane that the shelves are bare <laughs> at our local libraries. I went to the library yesterday. I could have gotten 120 books because I did steal Dylan's <laughs> library card as well, but I only got 60. So, like, good job. I. <laughs> Two things. First off, I will say if you don't bring home 60 books, you're not going to be forced to read through a stack of 60 books by Mackie. Uh-huh. Mm. But beyond that, what is the look in the librarian's eye Yeah, when you plop down 60 big ones? Um, well, <laughs> for like the fourth time this year. The, well, okay. The first three times I fell for that. And every time they're like, are you a teacher? And I'm like, no, I just have a kid that reads a lot. And they're like, uh-huh. But then the last <laughs> few times I figured out I can do self-checkout. So I just self-check out. And so then I keep oh, the shame no. to myself. You just have to lie and say that you have like 10 kids. Yesterday, a man with his child was asking me how to check out books because he was like, clearly, you know how. And I'm like, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, boy. Guys, it's cool. I wish you well. I, I feel like something bad is going to happen. What? could possibly happen they don't have any late fees so you know <laughs> i love how maggie's beating andrew in terms of her good reads list yeah it's true yeah her, her good reads goal is like 2012 <laughs> <laughs> andrew um did you happen to um surf the gnar recently did you happen to get out there among the dolphins and hang out yeah i totally you know i gripped it i ripped it i reflected on life through moments and through the subconscious and i lived an entire life while i caught that barrel oh sick and also i read the waves by virginia (laughs) (laughs) woolf Whoosh. Toby, is surf the gnar? Does, is that like gnarly, like really cool? What's in uh, the gnar? You know, I I said it wrong. It's it. Nobody says it, but it is shred the gnar. Ah. I think. Um, but yeah, I believe gnar is a is an abbreviation of gnarly. Gotcha. Um, and. Andrew, please review this book and I can stop talking about this. Well, I'll come to you if I have any more surfing questions yeah. during my review, Toby. But okay, good, good. Surprisingly enough, this book doesn't deal with surfing that much. What? what? I know. Virginia Woolf's like, I was so stoked that one day. <laughs> so, yeah, not a lot about surfing, um, but let me try to give you a little intro amuse-bouche mm. about this book. Virginia Woolf at her stream of consciousness best. The waves follow six friends from cradle to grave, almost literally. First loves, first hates, great successes, devastating failures, all eroded slowly and smoothed by inevitable undefeated time. Mm. Using an unparalleled style and disregard for clarity, Woolf creates a story that is no more or no less than the futile sum of human life. Whoa. Whoa. Jazz. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> freaking gnarly. Wow. Shred the gnar, man, Virginia. Shred that gnar. April Fool's. Just <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, no, so so yeah, I didn't know a lot about this book going in. It was an often cited, but for whatever reason, never taught book in my classes in college. I sort of focused in my English literature courses around this time and a lot of these authors, um, similar to Virginia Woolf, but I never actually read this one or had it as an option. But I picked up a copy sometime after college and was like, oh, eventually I'll feel smart enough to read that. And here we are. I like imagining that everyone in your program had never read it, but all, they've all been pretending to have read it. Yeah. They're yeah. all waiting to be on their own podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just feels like something that you maybe have read about and they're like, I basically know what that's about. About waves, right? Yeah. About that. Yeah, it's about sweet, sweet waves. And so what the actual structure of the book is, just to give you guys a little bit more of a less flowery description, is it is chapters interspersed with sort of like natural vignettes. So it'll start with these like, at least in my copy, they're in italics, page to two page descriptions of nature um, and mm. specifically uh, the sun rising. And guess what? The sun gets higher in the sky and then the sun sets throughout the book as mm. that is um, presented counter to um, the lives of these six friends from, I'm unclear exactly how old they are at the beginning, but they're like in some sort of nursery sort of situation. And then they leave to go to boarding schools in the second chapter. Um, and we go from about that age to literal like dotage. So it's Muppet Babies to the Muppet movie. Well, what's beyond Muppet? Because I think that yeah. the Muppet movie would be like the middle. Mm, Muppet Treasure Island. Yeah, it would go to like Dead Tom and Muppet, <laughs> and Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> Dead Tom's always been dead. Bailey, you're, you're really messing with your own, your own imagery. <laughs> <laughs> dead Tom's always been dead. Didn't expect that this to be where this review went. April Fool's. Um, but you know what? I should have, and that's on me. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's it's basically that. Those vignettes of a sun rising and setting counterspersed into six people getting older and all the complications that come with that. Sounds straightforward and simple, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well. It actually sounds like the most complicated that I've heard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's let me add to that that it's written stream of consciousness style as dialogue, but dialogue that is clearly not actually being spoken. This doesn't sound simple at all. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. April Fools, continue. I'm going to pivot into sort of my orcs and elves here, because um, my first elf is actually the style, as counterintuitive as that might be. It's very cool, mm. but it's very hard to describe. So rather than try to like give it my, you know, 10 years out from a middling English major description of this style, why don't I give you an actual quote? This is on page 16, which is the beginning of the second section in terms of like the second age. So this is when they're leaving to go to school, these six friends, whose names, in case you hear them, are Bernard, Louis, Neville, Ginny, Susan, and Rhoda. Kermit. I have no trouble remembering all this. Yep. No, they're not hard to remember at all. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to read kind of a long section because I'm going to read all of a section from the perspective of Bernard and then the beginning of a Louis section. It's going to be a rather long quote. Um, Now, said Bernard, the time has come. The day has come. The cab is at the door. My huge box bends George's bandy legs even wider. The horrible ceremony is over. The tips and the goodbyes in the hall. Now there is this gulping ceremony with my mother, this handsome shaking ceremony with my father. Now I must go on waving. I must go on waving till we turn the corner. Now that ceremony is over. Heaven be praised. All ceremonies are over. I am alone. I am going to school for the first time. Everybody seems to be doing things for this moment only and never again. Never again. The urgency of it all 
Paul is fearful. Everybody knows I'm going to school, going to school for the first time. That boy is going to school for the first time, says the housemaid, cleaning the steps. I must not cry. I must not behold them indifferently. Now the awful portals of the station gape. The moon-faced clock regards me. I must make phrases and phrases and so interpose something hard between myself and the stare of housemaids, the stare of clocks, staring faces, indifferent faces, or I shall cry. There is Louis. There is Neville, in long coats, carrying handbags by the booking office. They are composed, but they look different. Here is Bernard, said Louis. He is composed. He is easy. He swings his bag as he walks. I will follow Bernard because he is not afraid. So yeah, that's what the book is like. I, I actually like that better than I thought I would. Right? Yeah, me too. Yeah. That's me too. the thing. It sounds crazy, but it's actually kind of cool. <laughs> Uh, gnarly. And what I liked in particular about that quote and why I brought that one in is you got sort of a great example. First of all, all of that is in quotation Mark, So clearly Bernard is not actually speaking that aloud, but it is his stream of consciousness. Mm. And then you saw an example of a paragraph break when somebody else says something and takes the perspective over. That is always indicated by them saying like Louis said or Bernard said or Rhoda said within the first sentence. And then they get however many paragraphs they get until somebody else takes over. And I liked that interaction in particular because we saw like Bernard is interiorly freaking out, but then Louis sees him and is like, oh, well, he's got it together. Um, and you get a lot of sort of playing with perspective in that way in ways that create sort of a whole story of six lives from this perspective of individuals. Mm, sounds really good. Yeah. So it's fun. And the style, dear Pedro, evolves as we go through. Those are sort of the rules that do not break in that the perspective always starts with that person's name and like saying that they said something. But how much time and space is given to each of them, which characters speak the most in a certain chapter, that varies and, and sort of mirrors the, the time of life that we're in for that person. For example, in the first few pages when they're very young, the paragraphs are very short. It's like, look, a bird. <laughs> <laughs> and then as we get later, no spoilers, but the entire last chapter, which is the longest chapter in the book, is only from one of these characters' perspectives. And I bet it's Bernard. Bet you a hundred dollars it's Bernard. Ugh, it's such a Bernard thing to I do. I bet it's Kermit. It's actually Rolf. <laughs> so Wolf deploys that intelligently, as you might expect, and like sort of appropriately for, for what situation and age they're in. And it's honestly not like anything I've ever read before. Cool. Also, as you sort of maybe got a peek in there, they're sort of echoing lines and themes. And that actually goes over the entire book. So a line that was said in that paragraph might come back 50 pages later and you'll just be like, huh, oh yeah, that was said before by somebody. And like <laughs> each character has their own sort of things. They say a lot. One character says, Tuesday follows Monday, then Wednesday, Tuesday, like 30 <laughs> times. <laughs> um, and it's kind of fun and weirdly encounter maybe intuitively, I think that that was made better by the fact that I was negligent and read this book very quickly uh, mm. <laughs> until like yesterday to start it because um, it's only 160 pages. Uh, how complicated or hard could it be? Uh. But it was actually made better by that because I still had all those things sort of fresh in my mind. And so it was like really easy to track back to certain references. Cool. And ultimately, my biggest elf for this is that it, it delivers on sort of a huge promise, or at least it did for me, like a huge promise of sort of creating a short story that encapsulates an entire life and does it in a way where the form bolsters that mission. And I recognize that I'm sort of a sucker for this sort of thing. Like I, one of my favorite playwrights is Thornton Wilder, and he does this in like everything he writes. And like, so anything that's sort of like, well, I'm going to tell a whole life in just a few moments. Mm -hmm. I recognize that's maybe one of my like sweet spots. <laughs> that, that common trope. Yes. 
Um, I do have a couple orcs to to throw in there. Uh oh, uh, some wolves. Some well, one is really minor, which is that there's a it's a bit of dated language like that might crinkle our modern ear. She's very fond of sort of jungle metaphors, and I'll leave it there. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All authors at that time they lo- they loved that language, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, big fans of them, but. Honestly, not that awful for its time period. Like there was maybe one or two moments where I was like, eh, but I was expecting it to be worse because one of them is in like the first two pages. <laughs> She's like, gotta get it down. So I think it, it isn't too hard on the modern ear in terms of like themes. But ultimately, the big work I want to throw in is that it, it's not an easy book. Mm. Like, did I have to read things over and over sometimes to feel like I understood what was going on? Yeah. Do I really feel like I actually understood what was going on all the time? No. <laughs> Do I feel like I can like confidently analyze this book like I'm doing now? Not really, but I'm glad I'm trying. <laughs> Andrew, we're not there. You can lie and just say that you totally got it. I was going to say, as long as you say it confidently, I'll believe you. I totally get it. Yeah. I just don't want anyone to ask me follow-up questions. <laughs> um, and I guess... All that to say is that there was a certain fear in me that I wouldn't have enjoyed this book so much if I hadn't been forced to read it and moreover been forced to read it quickly in reference to the other elf. Yeah. But I'm really glad I read it. I thought it was a really powerful book. Oftentimes there are like classics or books that you everyone thinks you should read and then you finally read them and you're like, this is either too much or I don't really, I feel like I waited for the wrong time to read this. I like have developed my own tastes. But this one I was like really pleasantly surprised by. I thought it was very cool. I say this a a lot on the podcast and I don't think I've ever really done it but it's a book you could read again and yeah. get probably an entirely different experience of mm. like I imagine me in my early 30s focused in on different things than somebody reading this later in life or, or even earlier in life would because it is about the entirety of life yeah and yeah so I, I recommend this book if you're if you're willing to try something that might frustrate you a little bit because it certainly did I don't want to be like well I got it so because <laughs> I didn't uh, it was frustrating and it was hard but I think it is something that is definitely really worth reading i'm gonna give it five stars <gasps> which is a big swing and and you know it's one of those five stars that some of the rating is based on sort of just merit of the writing versus like inability to put the book down but i think i feel comfortable rating it this highly because i'm not i don't think any of my works really justify dinging it down nice i'll keep it on my shelf and again maybe when i'm 50 i'll read it again and focus entirely on the second half of the book but the middle part was very evocative <laughs> that's awesome okay so um toby do you have any facts on this gnarly surfer virginia wolf yeah i do she was totally stoked out <laughs> We've done her before, right? We have, we have. So I'm going to skim through her biography here. Um, But her biography is interesting. And I think I didn't do very much covering of it last time, honestly. So a heavy skim. Adeline Virginia Woolf. Bang. Look at that. Fact in the first phrase. Did you know (laughs) Virginia was her middle name? No. Nay, Stephen. Born 25th of January, 1882 and died 28th of March, 1941. She was an English writer and she is considered one of the most important modernist 20th century authors and a pioneer in the use of what Andrew talked about, the stream of consciousness as a narrative device. She was born into a pretty rich household in South Kensington, London, um, whose Bailey's co-worker hates. Um, <laughs> she was the seventh child of Julia Princep Jackson and Leslie Stephen in a blended family of eight, which included the modernist painter Vanessa Bell. I just want to say that my co-worker is from London. She's English, so I don't know if that affects anything. 
that makes it worse. Uh, she was homeschooled in English classics and Victorian literature from uh, a very young age. Um, and then from 1897 to 1901, she attended the Ladies' Department of King's College London, where she studied classics and history and came into contact with early reformers of women's higher education and the women's rights movement. She was encouraged by her father to start writing professionally uh, in the year 1900. And then after her father's death in 1904, the Stephen family moved from Kensington to the more bohemian Bloomsbury, where in conjunction with the brothers' intellectual friends, they formed the artistic and literary Bloomsbury Group. And they were quite an interesting group. In 1912, she married Leonard Wolfe. And in 1917, the couple founded the Hogarth Press, which published much of her work. They rented a home in Sussex and moved there permanently in 1940. Wolfe had several romantic relationships with women, including Vita Sackville West, who also published her books through Hogarth Press. Both women's literature became inspired by their relationship, which lasted until Wolfe's death. That Bloomsbury group was kind of an early advocate. I don't think they would call it free love, but they definitely were testing the boundaries of relationships, certainly for the time. Virginia had affairs with women. She had affairs like a platonic love affair with her brother-in-law. So that's a thing. Uh, okay. um, so her love life was quite interesting, especially for the time. Um, during the interwar period, she was an important part of London's literary and artistic society. Uh, and then in 1915, she published her first novel, The Voyage Out. Her best-known works include the novels Mrs. Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, which we've featured on the podcast, also Andrew Reading, and Orlando. Um, she's also known for her essays, including A Room of One's Own, which I thought was a book. I guess it's an essay. Hmm. Have you guys read that? No. Yeah. Did you think it was a book? Yeah. No, it's an essay. Duh. All right. She also became one of the central subjects of the 1970s movements of feminist criticism, and her works have since attracted much attention and widespread commentary for, quote, inspiring feminism. Uh, her books have been translated into more than 50 languages, and a large body of literature is dedicated to her life and work, and she has been the subject of plays, novels, and films. She is commemorated today by statues, societies dedicated to her work, and a building at the University of London. So, kind of a big deal. And Nicole Kidman. I was going to say that Andrew. <laughs> uh, now the sad part that you know you have to talk about. Um, it is true that throughout her life, Wolf was troubled severely by mental illness. She was institutionalized several times and attempted suicide at least twice. According to Dalsimer, her illness was characterized by symptoms that would today be diagnosed as bipolar disorder, for which there was absolutely no effective treatment during her lifetime. Sadly, in 1941, at age 49, Wolf died by drowning herself in the River Ouse at Luz. That is the, uh, the sad fact that we have to conclude her biography with. However, I'm going to counterpoint that with a fun fact. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, we hear a lot about Mrs. Dalloway and all those really serious, heavy books. However, there's not much talked about her book called Flush, which is a lighthearted and experimental book that tells a story from the perspective of poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning's dog, <laughs> who loyally stays by her side through illness and romance and adventure alike. Aww. Aww. Yes. The book was very popular in its time among animal fans who were also wild about Anna Sewell's Black Beauty, but it has been pretty much forgotten by critics and scholars today. Um, but it's out there. If you want to read it, you can read Virginia Woolf's Flush, a story about a dog who is attached to a poet. I thought you were going to say this very popular among animals. <laughs> Toby, animals can't say, not dog scholars. <laughs> Did you know that Animorphs was based on that book? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it has a picture of Virginia Woolf turning into a peregrine falcon. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's Virginia Woolf. I'm sure we'll get do her again because Andrew hates me and I have to do facts for people over and over. I think this is the last wolf I have on the cupboard. All right. No, no buying more wolf. I was going to say, I don't think I have any wolf yet. 
<laughs> I think what's going to happen is Toby is going to pick up a wolf. Oh, that's probably true. <laughs> they do sound good. I do want to read that dog book. Yep. Okay, well, that is The Waves by Virginia Wolf. Five stars. Nice. Back to business, folks. And our oh. next business item is asking Bailey if she read a book this week. Mm. <sighs> Guys, I did read a book this week. And just the way you're introducing it is fun. Dylan did the same when he chosened it because it's like you haven't read the book, but you're pretending to for a class project. I read the book True Biz by Sarah Novich. <laughs> oh, biz, biz, biz. The book has nothing to do with business. Um, okay, so I will explain first the plot of the book. The book follows a school for the deaf. It's a fictional school called the River Valley School for the Deaf um, in Ohio. It follows different diverse people in the deaf community as they're attending the school. So we follow mm-hmm. February, who is the headmaster, headmistress. Um, she is a coda, child of deaf adults. So she is hearing, but she signs and her parents were deaf. And so she, you know, teaches Mm. and advocates for um, deaf students. The main character is Charlie, who is a transfer student. She was born into a hearing family um, and her family, not really knowing what to do with her, advocated for her to get a cochlear implant um, in an effort to sort of integrate her into the English speaking world. Um, But what happens is is the cochlear implant doesn't take and it just becomes a nuisance and Charlie is unable to communicate and just gets frustrated by having to lip read and not being able to say words in a way that people can understand and lashes out and does poorly in school until she decides to transfer to the school for the deaf. But as she transfers there and sort of finds her community, it she's a really good stand-in for the audience who might not know anything about this um, community because she's learning ASL for the first time. She's learning the history of the deaf community, the history of ASL, the fact that there are different sign languages. It's not just ASL. There's black ASL. There's, you know, French sign language. It's everything. Um, And you learn more and more about that um, as she learns more about that. And the third main character is Austin. um, And he's from the other side of the spectrum in that he is a deaf boy. And he is kind of the big man on campus because he comes from several generations of a deaf family who are kind of like... Mm. You know, like it's like a legacy kid at the school where like. Yeah. And so and because he came from this family, he grew up, you know, with both his parents signing. His dad is hearing, but he also signs. He's an interpreter. So he has from the beginning um, been really competent and fluent in sign language and actually can't speak or lip read in the same way that Charlie can. Um, So he's kind of like really at the top of the status in the school, but maybe not so much in the hearing world. But that's what's interesting about the book is that everybody's status changes based on where they are and who they're speaking to. And you just see so many aspects of this rich world that you, well, at least I didn't know too much about. So the title, True Biz, is a an idiom in American Sign Language, which is ASL. I know we just said that without maybe saying what it stood for. And True Biz is a sign that for true and then business. But basically it, it means um, like seriously, literally, or real talk. Like if you're telling somebody something and you're like, no, this is really serious. This is true biz. Or if someone mm. asks you a question, you would say true biz. Like, do you want to know the truth? And then you'd respond. So it's sort of giving you the real talk about the deaf community, but it's also a really strong deaf idiom that doesn't really have the same 
same word in English. So that makes it special as well. This book is sounding really cool. Let's see. Um, uh, Sarah Novich is a deaf author writing about um, a deaf school. So she has mm-hmm. a really great perspective on that and really great understanding. And she's clearly done her research into intersectional issues within the deaf community and, you know, every kind of person that's involved with this community. I learned so much, obviously, about <laughs> the history, the mechanics, the interpersonal relationships, the politics about um, the deaf community. And I also learned a little bit of sign language. You might be surprised that as you read it, there are little sort of interstitials that are kind of, they would say like, oh, you know, this is how you fingerspell, or this is why you don't just fingerspell. And this is the way that ASL, you know, will use a qualifier before they start different signs, except it's basically like a manual that's interspersed throughout the book. And you might think, oh, that kind of takes you out of the story. But really, it's integrated in because of the context that Charlie is reading this as she's learning more about the school as she goes. I freaking love those kind of books where you yeah. feel like you're like learning information as you go. I really think you would like this. Um, one thing that I learned about ASL is that um, deaf scholars have proven that deaf has enough of the signifiers and qualifications to be qualified as an ethnicity, um, which I thought was hmm. really interesting. I, I don't know. I just found all of that fascinating on top of the fact that the characterization is excellent. We're switching perspectives between these really solid characters from different backgrounds and we feel like we really understand all of them. On top of the fact that Novich is an excellent writer, she has an excellent way of phrasing things, of putting situations. So I'm going to read one quote so you can get a sense. This is our character, Charlie, the transfer student, um, talking about her relationship with Austin, the quote, golden boy of the school. She rested her head on his shoulder, again gripped by the feeling she'd had that first moment they'd met, an attraction not only to him, but to the kind of person he was, the life that might have been hers if she had his stride and sureness and a hundred years of sign language coded right into her bones. When she nestled up closer against him, she undeniably felt desire, to be with him, sure, but also to sop up his knowledge, the confidence propelling his every sign, to absorb his great fortune and the flash in his eyes, swallow him whole. Wow. Very well written. There's also pictures that are integrated that show you signs, if that's something that you're interested in. And Novich does an excellent job visually on the page representing signing versus speaking English. I'm curious to know how they will do this in the audiobook. Maybe I will read the audiobook. But um, Mm. the signing is all in italics, and she'll space it out so you can tell that different people are signing to each other. And Charlie is listening and communicating and understanding ASL. There might be like breaks in it where she can't understand what the word is, or somebody might fingerspell the word and then tell her what the word is. It's just basically she's representing learning this language really well, visually on the page, um, makes it even more interesting. Um, So you think this book sucks, right? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I only have two minor quibbles about this book, two little orcs. They're very minor. Um, One is that there's a subplot involving um, Charlie's friends who are these like anarchist punks. And it's just not my favorite of the stories. And it sort of takes up more airtime than I wanted it to, but I understand why it's there. Um, just not my favorite. Mm. And then it's, this is a really minor thing. It starts with, you know, an intro chapter and then goes six months earlier and cuts. Yeah. And I just wanted it to start at the beginning of the story. 
<laughs> but all this to say, these are just tiny minor things. Even if I would think this is a four-star book, I'm going to give it five stars because kind of like Virginia Woolf, kind of like The Waves. Like yeah. I just really think people should read this book. It's excellent overall. It surprised me with how good it is. And I kind of read it in basically a day. I was really into it. I had to read it for the podcast, but I also like couldn't put it down. There were times where I was like, I should take a break when I was like, oh, just one more chapter. So I really recommend it. Five stars. Wow. You guys are welcome for me forcing you to read these books. <laughs> yes, it is you, Dylan. I do it because I fear you <laughs> and your wrath. Uh, amazing. Toby, do you have any facts on Miss Saranovich? I have the true biz. Ooh. Um, Saranovic. Uh, the first and most important thing that you need to know about Saranovic is that she is successfully and confidently rocking an undercut. <laughs> That is just important information. I stand by it. It gives you a, a shot of her personality immediately. I'll get some more details for you, though. She was born in 1987. She's an American writer, translator, and creative writing professor. Um, she's also a deaf rights activist who has written about the challenges she's faced as a deaf novelist. She is most notable. Now, this is a this is an interesting thing. She's most notable, they say, for her debut novel, Girl at War, which tells the story of Anna Jurik, a 10-year-old girl whose life is upended by the civil war that resulted in the dissolution of Yugoslavia. That one's on my shelf. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. It's be interesting to see if you read them both and you think, you know, which one you think is should be most notable for. Uh-huh. Um, her second book, True Biz, was released in 2022. So you're right on top of it, Bailey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, she is a graduate of the MFA program at Columbia University. Hey! Heard of it? Heard of it. <laughs> Where she studied fiction and literary translation. She is a fiction editor at Blunderbuss Magazine and serves as the founding editor of the deaf rights blog, uh, Redefined. And that's with the word deaf in the middle instead of the traditional spelling. She also works as an assistant professor of creative writing at Stockton University. Now, this is a book from Boom.com, an uh, interview with uh, Sarah Novick, and the interviewer here is Annie Liantis. Uh, this interview, I say this all the time, but like sometimes interviews with authors make me want to read their books so bad. Sarah Novick sounds so cool. I wanted to do like the entire interview. I wanted to pull every quote, but <laughs> that would be boring. Uh, so I didn't do it. So here we go. Any asks, this book is brimming with awareness and a sense of community unity. Can you speak to Deaf Pride? And Sarah answers, there aren't many communities comparable to the deaf community, except maybe the queer community. It's this thing that you're a part of, but it's not tethered to geography and you don't get it from your parents usually. It's a horizontal transmission of culture that's broad and weird and puts you into close relationships with people you might otherwise never have met. You have this language that you don't share with people you're close to biologically. There's lots of reasons why I like it personally, but in terms of community, it's just such a fascinating mix of people bound together by this certain shared experience that links you for life. Mm, well said. I'm actually going to backpedal a little bit, and I realized I didn't include this in her bio, and I don't think she's going to talk about it in this interview, but Sarah Novick has an interesting experience of deafness, which is she was born hearing and slowly lost her hearing uh, around her middle school years. Um, so that was her experience of deafness. Um, and then Annie asks, what do you like about it? Meaning the community, the deaf community. Sarah answers, being deaf makes me a better writer than I would be as a hearing person. ASL has made me a more visual thinker. I like the quiet. Deaf people are made into problem solvers because of how society operates. And there's a reflection of that in writing, particularly fiction writing. And it's definitely made me a more patient person because I'm not a patient person. It forces me to slow down in certain ways that are probably good for me. I notice more things because of it. Annie asks a intense question, which is, what is your hope for readers of True Biz? And Sarah gives an amazing answer, which is, I hope that people learn something that's interesting, which I feel like Bailey did. <laughs> I hope they feel connected to these characters too. I want them to see themselves in these characters and maybe that will be enough. 
So much of the activist work we do is to convince people that we are people, which sounds silly, but it's really the truth. That's the job of fiction. I don't want you to remember the A.G. Bell dates, but I want you to feel that these are humans that have lives that are worth having. I hope people go seek out deaf people to talk to, actually listen to what real human deaf people have to say and amplify those voices. And what Sarah's referencing there is Alexander Graham Bell was a proponent of eugenics about deaf people. Yep. Fun. Youch. Annie asks, what is your sign name and who gave it to you? And this is interesting because I didn't know people had specific sign names. Yeah, you. Um, when you're introducing yourself, you'll fingerspell your name and then you'll usually give your sign name just so that you don't have to spell it every time. That makes sense. So Sarah says, my sign is like this, open B hand shape on the breast pocket. Uh, my friend Alex gave it to me in Boston. It has to do with the sign for Croatia. It's the checkers from the soccer uniform and the flag. Brackets. Laughter. <laughs> Annie asks, True Biz is being made into a movie starring Millicent Simmons, the deaf actress cast in A Quiet Place. How are you adapting the book to the screen? And I chose this specifically because I'm so sick of Dylan and Bailey telling me that things are being made into movies when I didn't know that they were <laughs> movies. So I got you guys. I'm glad I didn't mention it earlier. <laughs> As Sarah says, I'm interested in how we can have a hearing audience follow along with Charlie while she's learning, experiencing the gaps she's experiencing without becoming so frustrated that you just quit. But that's the reality of being a deaf person in a hearing world. For Charlie, it's the reality of being a deaf person in a deaf world for a while. Sound design, subtitles, even the way that we can play with the camera and the perspective of who's speaking are all things that we've been talking about. I remember one time I was in college in Boston and I signed this sign, what kind, which is apparently only a Philly sign. Turns out the Philly accent is stronger than most regional ASL accents, which sounds on point. <laughs> <laughs> the interpreter's face was like, what is this girl talking about? But if we get to make this thing, bring these characters to life on screen, there's going to be brand new signs, brand new everything. And that is Sarah Novick. She sounds freaking awesome. I'm going to read this book 100%. Yay! Yay! Everyone should read it. True Biz. True Biz. So that is True Biz by Sarah Novick. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Hey, Andrew, True Biz. Did you make a game this week? I did. True Biz? True Biz? True Biz. All right. So the game this week, my friends, welcome to the Wolf Den. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. 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 Oh, indeed. So um, <laughs> <laughs> this game is very simple. So the way the game is going to work is I have taken, a la Virginia Woolf, a list of celebrities who have a animal in their name. And I have written a little sentence, um, which I'll give an example of before we go in. And your job will be to identify which celebrity I am talking about. You buzz in by saying Wolf Den. And whoever gets the most out of the seven questions wins. It's pretty straightforward. I will, however, ask that if you buzz in, you answer answer immediately, Toby. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, buzzing game, eh? <laughs> yes. Uh, answer immediately and it's always available to be stolen. So mm -hmm. you do have to strategize a little bit about when you buzz in. Okay. All right. And so, for example, just to give you a little taste, if I was doing Virginia Woolf, I might say something like, the furry lupine creature sent off another manuscript to the publisher. Okay. Mm. And that would be Virginia Woolf. Wolf Woolf done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These will get progressively, I think, a little harder and a little weirder, but we'll see. You can buzz in at any time, but know that I won't like complete the sentence if you buzz in. Got okay. It. The sly orange animal slipped on his traditional jeans and orange vest, growing a little tired of rehashing the same part at conventions, no matter how- Michael J. Fox. That is correct. <gasps> you got it before I said DeLorean. Ooh. Well All right. That's one point for Toby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Number two, the bird could get air anytime it wanted, what with its wings, but there was nothing more satisfying than dropping into that half pipe and making your own flight. Uh, true. Wolf den. True base. Wolf den. It's, the wolf den is again the buzz and word, not true base, <laughs> Bailey. Yes, Toby? April Fool's. Tony Hawk. <laughs> Tony Hawk is correct. Oh, yeah. Whoa, Toby. You only need to get to four to get a majority, but we're going to go through them all anyway. <laughs> Now we enter the part where I get a little weirder. Oh, good. Okay. I caw. I'm going to soak up the sun. Caw. Yeah. That's it. Uh, uh, Wolf Den. Toby. Cheryl Crow. That's killing it. Bailey, what is going on? Toby is absolutely smashing you right now. This is fantastic. I think this next one actually might might be one for Bailey to get. Okay. Oh, it'll be so freaking great if I <laughs> win the game after you say that. <laughs> With that tee up. All right. Tired of being just one in a five-man pond, this fishy said bye-bye-bye <laughs> and tried to go to Wolf, space. Wolf Den. Bailey? Lance Bass. That's right. It's Lance Bass. <laughs> oh, good one. That, yeah. All right. Number five, we're getting close here. Sailing through the sky on massive wings, this bird tries to remember her lines for the next All the Boys I've Loved Before movie. <laughs> Wolf Den. Bailey? Laura Condor. You sure you want to cha- don't want to change that first name? Well, that's cheating. That's kind of cheating. Well, she got the last name, which is Condor. Yeah. <laughs> Al Condor? I don't know what her first name is. Her name's her name is Lana. Her oh, name is Lana Condor. Okay, I was close. I don't think that's a point. All right. If it becomes tied at the end here, uh, we'll revisit that. Okay. Three quarters of a point Bailey got there. <laughs> three but, quarters of a point. Okay, okay. But okay, the score has tightened here. We have two more. Toby with one more gets the victory. But let's see how we do here. Sinking yet another three-pointer, the star of the 80s Celtics wondered why he couldn't have a more specific uh, animal for a uh, name. Wolf Den, Wolf Den, Larry Bird. Yep, that's right. Uh, my head was saying Magic Johnson, which is just right out. Not right. <laughs> I mean, it is his rival, but he did not play for the Celtics. Well done, Toby. You have taken the win. Thank you. You are the king of this game. King of the jungle. You know, when you announced that it was like a celebrity name thing, I was like, man, Dylan and Bailey always smoke me in those. But I guess Bailey was just asleep. Wow. You love uh, people with animals in their name. Do you want to hear the seven questions? Let's hear it. All right. This is the weirdest one. And apologies for my performance. But arf, 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 Seal. You guys both would have gotten it. I think we I think we tied on that one. I said at least. Okay, good. Bye. I truly was was worried about the tune of Kiss from a Rose, so I could not hear who busted first. (laughs) I didn't really get the tune, I but I I heard the animal, so you you did great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Good game. Well done. This was a a little quick silly game. Good job, Toby. And you know, good performance, Bailey. Thank you. That was a fantastic game. Thank you. Good game, Andrew. All right. Well, now is the time for April Fools. Dylan oh. to join us. <laughs> Dylan, true biz. Did you pick any books at random from our shelf to read next? Did you do a choosing? The choosing. Choosing. Arf, arf, arf. Um, I did. Uh, hold on, wait. I'm I'm looking for it. Has anyone seen my like thunder or like my huge clouds? Ugh. Uh. No. Bailey. What? You might have seen it because you know number fifty four, the lightning thief. By Rick Reardon. Percy Jackson, the lightning thief. This is one I got at a Goodwill like 
15 years ago. <laughs> oh, wait, this is Percy Jackson. This is like, is this the first one? Yeah. Has, have you guys read it? It seemed like, nope. quote, a boy book. No, it was, I think, just a little yep. too late. Yeah. Yeah. I it, think. Just, it just missed us, I think. It was just like three years, four years too late. Well, I just, I hope I like this one in the same way that like an 11 year old boy would. I hope I'm not, you know, in a grumpy Redwall or Hoot mood like <laughs> I have been before. So I'm excited. How dare you equate Redwall with Hoot? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know, I've gotten so many compliments on my Redwall shirt, guys. You have no idea. You're welcome. I'll have you know, I wore my Redwall shirt to a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> the bride was stoked. Seriously, people stop me in the street and, and compliment my Redwall shirt. So thanks for giving me that, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what's about this book? Um. Oh, actually, you know what? Oof, Andrew, two weeks from now, it's not really going to work for me. Um. Let me just check my schedule. Oh, I don't really have any opening until like the winter. Mm. How does... Okay. Um. Number 28, the 10th of December work for you by George Saunders. Oh. Okay. Well, no, that actually sounds really good. <laughs> you yet again filled my heart with fear like every choosing does. <laughs> But no, I'm very excited. I've never read any George Saunders, and oh I think God. this is a good place to start. And I'm very excited, despite my recent misgivings about covering stories on, on the podcast. Ready for some weird stuff. Oh, Andrew, this is one of my favorite short story collections, I think, of all time. This is, it's a good book. All right. If this book was fighting Exhalation, who would win? If this one was fighting Exhalation, I think Exhalation would win just barely. But it'd be a, it'd be a Ooh, close fight. There'd okay. be a lot of blood on the floor. Ooh. I like to think they just become friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't fight. This is exciting. Okay, so in two weeks on the podcast, I am reading The Lightning Thief by Rick Rorden, and Toby's reading Wizard's First Rule by Terry Goodkind. We're going to have some fantasy YA up in here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you're a feminist icon who likes to shred the gnar, uh, log on to iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and rate us five stars. It really helps the visibility of the podcast. And if you really want to hang 10, write a review because we love to read them. And that also helps. And if you are looking for a different way to help out our podcast and you're part of a group of six friends who age together, well, <laughs> juxtaposed against a uh, nature vignette metaphor of the sun setting on your dear life. Tell the other five of your friends in that group about this podcast because word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books.